Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Hello, church. And of course, happy Father's Day to the fathers out there. And also, we always remember those who wish they could be fathers or who were fathers and lost their children. Everybody is welcome here. We honor the fathers, but we don't forget the others, just like we said on, Mon- on Mother's Day. We remember those that this is a harder day for them. Just want to let you know, I uh, visited the prison, Louisiana State Penitentiary, again uh, just two days ago. It's hard to believe. that <laughs> a lot of miles and, and events since then. But Bobby Hampton sends his love to you, his appreciation for all of your prayers. And he wants you to know that he prays for you every single day. And I believe that he does. He is, he is a man full of the Spirit of God. And we worked on another sermon. Uh, I told him his first sermon was so well-received that we needed to do another one. So he and I worked on a sermon. And I told him we were only going to do this every few months because I don't want him to become more popular than me. And he laughed at that too. Uh, and then we took communion t- together in that little seven by seven room. Uh, and that was a very sweet moment before we left. Tammy Matthews visited, uh, I think he visited on purpose one, but it's in a big room because he was over in Life Row, a different place. And he was able to visit several of our brothers and they send their love and appreciation to us today. I'll get those texts put together and and give you a better report. By the way, thank you for subscribing. We finally hit 3,600 subscribers. That's um, pretty pretty important. And Hannah Bremner, who you've not met, most of you, she's up in Illinois, but she works a few hours a week. It's a different number each week for social media. And that thing's growing. It is growing real fast. So thank you for the subscribers. Thank you for all of you who worked we have the last in this particular series of sermons, A World Without Jesus, subtitled, What Rushes In When Jesus Is Pushed Out? And I hope you've listened to the other three, but especially, I hope you've listened to the first one, because this is the other bookend. This is not the assuring you of your place in heaven and of your significance. We're not doing that today. We've done that the last two weeks, and we could do it more. There are a lot more passages that talk about our, our confidence in the love, uh, the salvation of Jesus, what he's already done for us, what he has promised to do for us. We could do that, but we need to transition. This sermon will end this particular series. Next Sunday is a special sermon, special subject. And then in July, we start a series called You Say You Want a Revolution. And now that's in your head and you're welcome. But it's a phrase, especially since the first sermon will take place on July 4th weekend. I thought it might be good. Those of you who are not Americans, on July 4th is where Americans uh, celebrate the fact that they no longer have a cool, a cool accent. Um, they, they, um, they no longer have to pay an outrageous 2% tax on tea. 
a little more than that. Uh, but I, yeah, I can remember the first year I moved to Tennessee, I had never seen that many fireworks in my life. I was on our back deck, and I thought, is this never going to end? And it kept going and kept going. And I, I forget, my wife was somewhere else at the time, and she called, and she said, how are things going? And I said, I haven't seen this many rockets gone off since we lost Baltimore. But um, those of you who don't know history, that's where the Star Spangled Banner was raised. It was written, actually, and the tune to it is an old English pub song. So there you go. But we're going to talk about what it really means to be a revolutionary and how when the courts accused Jesus' followers of turning the world upside down, they were right. So look for that. G.K. Chesterton is often quoted as saying, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. In reality, it wasn't Chesterton who said it first. It was um, a poet and a playwright named Emile Camiot. The saying's well known, however, and it survived for 150 years because it's true. If we do not believe in Jesus, we tend to believe anything else that rushes in to fill that space. You may have heard it said, because I hear it say, said a lot, that nature abhors a vacuum. Almost everywhere when I hear that, I'll say, is that something that you, you know from science? And they're very proud. Yes, yes. I don't tell them that there are a lot of vacuums in the universe. A whole lot. True, on Earth... Um, a little hard to come up with one, but uh, Aristotle is one who came up with that idea, and we've learned some things since Aristotle, so just be aware of this. The fact is, there are naturally occurring vacuums in the universe. On Earth, not so much, but when there's an empty space, I will grant you. The universe tries to fill it, and when your head removes one authority, it searches for another. And those of you that would say, well, no, we're not looking for any authority, we just want to be free. Yeah, who's your freedom leader? And there will be people. And there will be thought leaders. You are replacing one for another. At least be aware of it. We see this vacuum filling with migration. When some animals move out, other animals move in. When some animals move in, some animals move out. And the same with people. People move about the planet. They change things. Um, there is a history channel series, and you don't normally hear me push a history series, and I'm not now, actually, because there's not really much history in the History Channel, and there's very little to discover in the Discovery one, so just be aware. But the, there is a History Channel series that you can still see, and after 15 minutes, you get the idea, and you don't need to see anymore, but it's called Life After People, and what it does is it will show you a tableau, perhaps, that you, that you know well. It might be London, it, it might be Jakarta, it, it might be Nashville, whatever it is. And then they will, com, you know, computer graphics, CGI, they will then remove the people, and year one, this is what it looks like. Year 50, and you see the plants coming back, and you see the animals coming back, and you see the structures deteriorate. Yeah, you can see that every day if you look. Here in Tennessee, you will see grand old houses out in the middle of a field, rotting. Have you ever wondered, what happened? Was it a 
Some might die and leave no heirs. Or did they leave heirs that fought each other and nobody could repair it? Or I remember when we first moved here, they said, now the housing prices are expensive, but land is cheap. And I looked at our realtor and I said, what does that mean? And she said, well, houses are expensive, but farms are disappearing because the farmers are dying and their kids don't want the land. Okay. I don't know why I would want to know that, actually, because I'm not building a house. So we, 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 yeah. I, I know some of you would love to build a house. I should not be in charge of anything like that. Nothing like that at all. There'll be 3,000 square foot of books and guitars, and people say, where's the bathroom? And I'll go, oh. So not a thought of mine. We may not understand something about this, and that is this is not just places. This is not just trees and animals. It also applies to beliefs, ethics, morals, faith, cultural assumptions, religion. We all see the same phenomena occur in every instance. So Kemert was correct. When one thing is removed, another thing will come take its place. When men choose to believe, choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing they then become capable of believing in anything. We lived for about 10 years in West Virginia. Wonderful, wonderful experience. Maybe eight years or whatever it was. It was a wonderful experience. I had a neighbor next to us that uh, <clears throat> had some gravel delivered for his driveway. Well, the, dry, the truck did, was not precise and dumped the gravel mostly in our driveway that this was not something we were furious about or upset about at all. We just woke up one Saturday and went, oh, look, we got new gravel. And our neighbor was over there with a shovel, just trying to move things as fast as he could. And my son, who I think was about 10 years old, has never been afraid of work and always wants to join in. And my son was over there, you know, going. So I thought, oh, great, now I have to help, you know, or, or I'll look like the jerk that I really am internally. So I went over and under great reluctance, started helping him move the gravel. <clears throat> He started talking to me about his sister, the, my, our neighbor did. He, um, he said she's decided that she believes in astrology and tarot cards, and he's going on and on. I go, really? And he said, yes. And then he said, well, if you won't believe in God, you're open to believe in anything. I did not realize at the time he was quoting a French playwright, but um, he's right. When faith in God fades away, and be aware, less than half of Americans now say they strongly believe there is a God. That does not shock any of our listeners in the United Kingdom, let's say, or Japan or Singapore or the like, where uh, a great percentage do not believe in God. We're kind of trailing the herd, but we're headed that direction. Jesus then becomes demoted <clears throat> to a myth. So we spent a few Sundays showing, no, he's a historical fact. He's written in history. It's provable. Then they'll say, well, he was just a man teaching some things. And people love to look at Jesus and then put their clothes on him. He is their revolutionary. He is their political left or political right. He is their whatever. They love to do that. Back in the old days... Preachers used to say, you can prove anything by the Bible, but you just have to make sure it's early in there. 
But I've heard all my life, you could prove anything by the Bible if you cherry pick. You go about and find your little bits and pieces. And that's probably true. So people have done that with the life of Christ and said, well, he wasn't the son of God, but he was a really great teacher. Or he was just misled. Or but it leaves more of a gap than just giving you some extra time on Sunday. If you demote Jesus, it doesn't just give you sleep-in time one day a week. You see, most governments are based upon a social contract. Now, not true in an absolute dictatorship. But you may be surprised. We have far fewer absolute dictatorships now than we did when I was born. Those more and more people are able to actually cast a meaningful vote, which is a good thing. But what is a social contract? Well, it's something understood and required, but it's rarely articulated. It's between the rulers and the people. I do this, you do this. You have obligations to your neighbors. You have obligations to the state. The state has obligation to you. Now, when that's all shaken up and people have lost their foundation and their expectations go away, there is public disorder. And we have seen public disorder, not just in this country, but in many countries in recent years. This is why even an election can result in riots. This is why even the movement of one king to their heir can result in disruption and turmoil because what's the social contract? I can remember the first time someone lectured me about the social contract and I said, I don't know about you, but I didn't sign anything. The problem is I have by taking a breath because I live in a society where this is understood. And I want to apologize to our foreign viewers because I've got to make this rather USA-centric to make a point. In the USA, it was understood and often stated by the founding fathers that our form of government, a constitutional republic, could only work if the people and the leaders agreed on a solid set basis foundation of facts concerning humanity and God. John Adams wrote, our form of government was made only for a moral and religious people. The Constitution was written assuming we would be a moral and religious people, therefore this Constitution would work for America. By the way, the, that quote is much longer, and I'm going to ask you to give me a dispensation of grace here. I don't like to read long quotes because generally speaking, you lose people within a few sentences, but I'm going to say these words precisely. It is one paragraph. It is in 18th century English, so you may have to listen closely, and I'll try to articulate but in fact, if you read the letter from which that line is quoted, it should give you chills, and not just in the USA. But, here we go. But should the people of America once become capable of that deep simulation toward each other and toward foreign nations, which assumes the language of justice and moderation, while it is practicing iniquity and extravagance and displays in the most captivating manner the charming pictures of candor, frankness, and sincerity while it is in actuality uh, rioting and a rapine and insolence 
this country will be the most miserable habitation in the world. Because we have no government armed with the power capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion, avarice, ambition, revenge, licentiousness, would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. He was right. And when people shove Jesus out and they declare licentiousness or living according to whatever you feel like, whatever the time you feel like, whatever you say you are, you have broken a social contract and it is filling in with things that will destroy you and already are long hard about that work. Most governments have long ago replaced religion with government. A lot of that was because of the confusion for a very long time about the power of church and state and that the state was the church and church had power. It was a very confusing time. I'm not sure we've straightened all that out yet. Others did it because of the failure of churches. Let us be blunt. Had churches cared for the widow's the poor, and the orphan, there would have been no room for the government to rush in. But when the churches enjoyed being rich and being powerful, and they assumed the social contract would always benefit them, and they left behind the poor, and they left behind the others, government moved in, and now they're the paymasters. And they pay for the man's children. And they pay for what we've done and what we refuse to do. I, um, I didn't bring up my phone with me. I was about to read the statistics of uh, fatherless children. It's 70% of all crimes. It is 60% of all suicides. I can keep going. When one leaves, what rushes in? Something rushes in. So, when we have needs, what do we do? People have abandoned prayer. They instead petition for government to bestow the goods and services that you might require. We are entering another election season in America. In the UK, they do it different. The United Kingdom, by the way, there's a certain period of time you're elected for, but any time during that period, the government can call another election. And it's really close, just a matter of weeks. And so, there's a, and so your, your campaign time isn't like it is in America, which is never stops. It never stops. Before the election is finished this next year in 2024, before it is finished, there will be de- uh, declared candidates for the next one. And to form their, their people, they will make you promises. And they always promise. Have you ever heard? And I'm, I don't listen to them, frankly, because I'm, I'm a good soldier. I don't get entangled with the affairs of this world. But I've heard enough uh, State of the Union addresses in my life to where this is a list of things I'm going to give you if you support me. And why do we do that? Because we have switched our God for government. 
Our government will supply what we need. It will care for the fatherless and the widow. It will declare right and wrong and tell us what is right and what is wrong. And the fact that they're always changing their minds about this should not bother us because they're the government. There are betters. They will determine what can be said, where it can be said, and even what can be thought. In Britain recently, a minister was arrested for standing a block away from an abortion center. By the way, I don't approve of picketing abortion centers. I think that's too late. I think we teach our children the value of life and teach the children around you the value of life long before it gets to that stage. But regardless, and I could be wrong there. I've been wrong before. But he was standing a block away quietly with a sign saying God loves life or something like that. And the police came up to him and said he couldn't protest. He says, I'm not. I'm just standing here. And they said, are you praying? And he said, yes. And they arrested him. That also happened in America two months ago. You see, when you shove Jesus out, somebody else gets to tell you what you think and what you say and what is appropriate. No wonder Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. No good soldier entangles himself in the affairs of this world so that he might please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And if you don't realize how wrapped up this gets, for a lot of my life, I was raised with certain politics. I would walk by a homeless person and studiously not make eye contact. And I would think, well, we pay taxes to take care of him. This is completely, he's, only, he's there by choice. Yeah, yeah, I thought that. Pretty self-righteous. I have since changed. I have a feeling God's still changing me. So anytime you want to quote me, date me, because I might be different tomorrow. But what have, we, what have I just said there? I have no obligation to the poor because I paid somebody else to do that. How did we get there? You got there the same way you eat an elephant, one bite at a time. We got there one step at a time. But I want to leave government aside for now as we see how it steps in for God. And I think we need to understand that the social contract right now is more myth than reality. The social contract consists of those things understood by the citizens and their governments, the rights and wrongs of public life. And yet, when riots are in the streets, when women are demoted and downgraded, and our definitions of personhood are continually changed, when babies are called clumps of cells to make them more easily discarded, and when anyone who disagrees with you is all of a sudden a Nazi, I would suggest that the social contract has been dissolved. And something else needs to get into that space, fill that vacuum, and it has, worldwide, in different forms. There are hundreds of millions of people who believe in karma, that the universe is keeping score, and that each of us get what we believe. And while that might sound good to you, it only sounds good to you if you have not thought about it for more than 10 seconds, because it is absolutely a demonic horror show. That is why in India and other, um, especially East, Southeast Asian nations that teach, the re- to them is solid, karma is real. That's why you don't see them building orphanages and hospitals and such for the poor because the poor are poor because of the, or working out their karma from earlier lives. 
And if you feed the kid, give the kid clothes, give the kid medical care, you're just dooming them to another six, seven hundred cycles of life until they work out their bad karma. You then have a religious excuse to not care for the poor, but shrug and march on. The slave trade is very alive and very well. In fact, it's healthier now than it was at the time of the Civil War. And it is a slave trade that mainly slaves, uh, rather enslaves blacks and Asians. But there are a lot of others that are now in the slave pipelines as well. Modern day slavery is a horrific sin, just as ancient slavery was. How can a human being treat another human being that way? Well, the answer to that's quite easy, frankly. Remove faith in God and Christ and obligation to love. Because once that is gone, why not enslave them? Tell me why not. We would know, we'd have no obligation to them. And there, there might be utility potential. That's a psychological term. Uh, for example, teenagers tend to make friends based on utility potential. Uh, there, are, there are benefits to being a friend to that person. So it could be that you, you know, they have a nicer car. They have a parent that lets them come to the house for parties. It could be that they're cooler. Therefore, there's that cool aura around them. Well, when I look upon you, not as an individual created in, in the image of God, but rather as someone I can use to get a vote by my product or work for me without pay, why not? If there is no God, why not? And if we believe in karma, caste, class systems, etc., we just assume people are getting what they deserve. Like that incredibly sad and insightful song by Janice Ian at 17, where she sings, I learned the truth. Pity, please, the ones who serve, they only get what they deserve. We teach grace, mercy, peace, sacrifice, sharing, love, and all of those things are incredibly unhelpful to you if you're working your way up a karmic ladder. But they are reality if there is a God and we are all made in his image and we are to love one another. Another thing that can rush in is a, a philosophical system called positivism. It's very related to utilitarianism. It tries to, it tries. It's, its job is to shove God out so that it can rush in. Positivism has been around for a long time, but it was uh, systematized into a system of philosophy and government by uh, Auguste Comte, a French philosopher and mathematician in the early 1800s. Simply put, positivism is a system of thought that says all genuine knowledge is either true by definition or by positive, and that would mean a posterior of facts, in other words, results. So, you know, any other way of knowing theology, metaphysics, whatever, doesn't matter. It's the results. Uh, utilitarianism, would, one of its differences, would say the results have to be an increase in total world happiness. The Nazis used that. They understood that if people knew what they were doing, that the, the horror would raise against them and wipe them out. But they believed they were doing righteous stuff because we got to get rid of the vermin they called everybody they killed. Jehovah's Witnesses, Lutherans, Jews, Gypsies. 
get rid of the vermin, and then the world will be increased in happiness. They'll thank us. They will run to us. If you read their stuff, which, by the way, is really dark, they believed it. But when you, if you decide to read that stuff, just remember the warning of Nietzsche, that when you look into the darkness, the darkness looks back. Be very careful about how much you do that. And by the way, all this inner working of this whole stuff, there's no room for that in positivism or utilitarianism. What's the result? As one uh, United States senator said when he was confronted with the fact that he had lied repeatedly about a presidential candidate, his response was, it worked, didn't it? And nobody rose up in the streets against that. I saw utilitarianism in practice. It worked. So therefore, it's okay, as long as it worked. They look at people like us and say, inner work in the soul, nonsense. Faith, nonsense. What I think or feel, nonsense. It's only the experience that shows us what is true and valuable. And in the writings of the Nazis, they, repeat, they appeal to positivism and as semi-justification for their horrific actions. Because if it works, it is good. Why is it good? Because it works. And we, we are happier. And they touted something called social Darwinism. Contrary to what it might seem, Darwin was not the father of social Darwinism, except tangentially, because it was one of his followers, uh, and maybe even competitors, Herbert Spencer, who took Darwin's ideas and applied them to social groups and races. People understand, I'm going to use the term races. The fact is, scientifically, biologically, there is one race. When I look at Bobby, and Bobby is an African-American man, his features are different than me, his colors are different than me, we are still the same race. Humanity is one race. Understood? All right. Now, as we use common language, sometimes we'll say this race and that race, but we understand we are the same people. That said, Spencer taught that human societies developed like natural organisms, and that the struggle with survival was just what we're supposed to do. It was he, not Charles Darwin, that coined the phrase, the survival of the fittest. If my society can beat up your society, by the way, that's not nations. What if people in my neighborhood decide to take over the next neighborhood? What if people who are uh, Scottish, Irish guys living in America decide to get together and jump? You see, that's the thing. If it works, then it's good. And here's the horror show that I want you to understand, and I'm looking over, I don't know that I can do this in six and a half minutes, I, that's the time I gave Dave, so uh, um, the Nazis were not alone in embracing social Darwinism, in fact, they learned it from America. In the United States, there was a movement called the eugenic movement, all the smart people were in it, the science was settled. It started in the 1800s, a study of Mendelism in plants and then applied to societies. And it ran all the way up into, through the 1940s in America. Starting right after World War I, it was thought that the human race needed cleansing of inferior people. Mass sterilizations took place in America. They would break into people's homes and split up the marriage because of suspicion that this is an impure person and sterilize them. Leading the sterilization were the progressives out of California and New York where mass 
more took place there than any other, and very aggressive. Prominent citizens were supporters, including both Democrats and Republicans, Theodore Roosevelt, John D. Rockefeller, and fellow Scotsman, Alexander Graham Bell. They believed that now we live in a modern world, we don't need faith in Jesus. That's a superstition to them. That war is good, and that we can cure social ills through genetics and heredity. Booths were set up at state fairs with big banners for you to come in and have them test and look at your genealogy, and you could get a certificate of racial purity. That way you could marry another. In Virginia, the Department of Records head had his own army. Dr. William Plecker would go into the hollers, and the Melungeons and other mixed-raced people, he would either sterilize, break up their marriages, or he would go into records and change the record from FPC, which meant free person of color, to Negro, so that he could then remove them from public life because we need our people to be purer. That was in America in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And it's not taught in our schools. Sometimes people will ask me, how is that not taught? And I'll say, you know, in Japanese schools, they don't teach about what the Japanese did in POW camps. Every country whitewashes what they did Marriages forcefully dissolved, um, took their children to far-off orphans' homes, changed their status to deny them rights, jobs, and positions. And the leader in this was in the White House, Woodrow Wilson. When Woodrow Wilson came into office, there were black senators and black representatives, mainly in the Republican Party. There were blacks in all levels of government. Within two years, he had wiped them all out and made it the law that they could not serve in any of these. And he segregated the military into white and black troops. And we have politicians today that will say, we're progressives in, the, in the, the way that Woodward Wilson was because people don't know what he was. Look him up. Read the books. Read his own words. It is a horror show. And if you Google, please, if you have any doubts on this, do this. Google eugenics, that's E-U, if you don't know Greek and Latin, E-U-G-E-N-I-C-S, eugenics and scientific racism. You will read official papers from the National Institute of Health, the National Human Genome Research Institute, and more that will leave you weeping on the floor if you have a soul. Margaret Sanger, the founder of the abortion movement, argued for abortion, not because women needed not to have a baby because it was economically difficult for them or to save the life of the baby. No, her entire reason for pushing abortion was to end the black race. And even today, politicians step up to get the Sanger Award every year. And I go, can you read a history book? Do you see what is happening Oliver Wendell Holmes, a, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, I believe he was Chief Justice, was he? Was he not? Yeah, of the Supreme Court. When Buck versus Carey came before him, this was a young lady who was forcibly sterilized against her will, uh, and it worked its all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court voted eight to one that that was just fine. 
And in his opinion, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who's looked upon as this great legal mind, wrote, quote, three generations of imbeciles is enough. And we have letters in our archives from Himmler, Hitler, Hess, thanking the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Foundation for leading the way for racial purity. When that got out, they shot down Cold Harbor. Cold Harbor, mm, Cold Spring Harbor. Cold Spring Harbor was shut down in 1939 because it was starting to get out. What was, this, what was happening in Germany and how it was linked to us. It just went underground. But Hitler didn't come up with that on his own. He got that because people shoved out God in the name of progress. And look what came. How did it happen? Well, mentally and religiously, we do abhor a vacuum. We're going to have to stop here with a couple of scriptures and some thoughts. But we're not done. In a couple of weeks, like I said, we're going to talk about a real revolutionary who hit this world and literally turned everything upside down. And this is not something we can vote in or out of office. We are not going to vote Jesus into the presidency, nor a surrogate. That's not the way Jesus works. Jesus only works when people live like Jesus and step out of their brick and mortar and their comfort zones and their reliance upon bank accounts and their reliance upon anything but Jesus. And they become living temples of the Holy Spirit. And they bring light and heaven to the world. One of the most dangerous things we have ever done is concentrate on going to heaven when we die. Because it makes us wait and not bring heaven here. And it has been a tragedy. We need to live the life of Christ. Never by force. Never by force. Never through hatred. Never through divisiveness. But always through love. And so you say you want a revolution? Well, let's see what that might look like. Two passages of scripture as I close. Job chapter 34, starting verse 12. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed him over all the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? If it was his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish altogether and mankind would return to the dust. And then Isaiah chapter 64. By the way, it's the thing about Bobby. It just made me smile. Every time we talked about anything, he'd say, well, in Isaiah, he, he has pretty much memorized that book. As he'd say, now, Isaiah 53, now about this verse, or Isaiah 11, about this verse. It's amazing. If you, if you want to read current events, read Isaiah. It, it does read like that. Isaiah 64, 6 through 9. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. And you've given us over to our sins. One of the greatest curses of God is to give you over to what you want to do. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. 
For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. And yet you, O Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are your people. I think that's the only response we can have to this. It's to say, you know something? Our job is not to despair. Our job is not to crawl into a hole somewhere. Our job is not to be afraid. And I don't understand. I really do not understand people who, that's their reaction to all of this, is to despair and sit and talk about what's wrong and then freeze. Instead of, if the world gets darker, shine brighter. That's, it's like, like going up to the top of a mountain and looking up at the night sky. You're going to see a lot more stars than you thought were there. When the world gets darker, they'll see us. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Bring heaven. When the world gives you hell, give them heaven. But it starts with where do you bow your knee? Because you will bow somewhere. As Bob Dylan, the great prophet, said, you got to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yeah. We know who we choose. But we do not choose that out of arrogance or by saying we're better than any other human being on the earth because we are not. We do it because our God is greater than any other and always will be. So while it may be a downer of a sermon, it's something you need to know about our history, which brings us to our reality. To the work. Don't hide in a cave like Elijah. Remember, God found him there and that God found him. And he found God, not as a raging fire and an earthquake, but as a still, small voice. Let's start there.